Good afternoon and welcome to our current ep- episode of What the Art, your weekly culture fix. I'm Rachel Parsons, the director of New England Regional Art Museum, and I'll use any excuse to talk about art, so I started this podcast. Uh, I do apologise for not being here last week. I was unfortunately ill, but let's get straight back into it. Today I am speaking with Walker-based artist James Rogers with his, about his art practice and also some recent exhibitions, um, including Hard One ground at nanda hobbs gallery and tunnel vision at drill hall gallery thank you for coming on what the art james thanks for having me rachel <laughs> um so your bio on nanda hobbs's website describes you as a poetic sculptor uh, which i do agree with but how would you describe your work and what you do i'm a sculptor <laughs> and i kind of make sydney sculpture and that's the uh, practice that I've put together over for, um, 23 odd solo exhibitions mm. now in my sort of 40 years. Um, it's manifestly uh, made of steel. Yes. And um, I enjoy it. <laughs> Excellent. You said Sydney sculpture. What does that mean? Well, that's a type of sculpture that's come out of the National Art School sculpture department used to be called East Sydney Tech through the uh, late 60s 70s and uh, it it seems to have influenced a cohort of sculptors that both taught there as well as moved on from there and uh, that kind of characterises the sculpture that I make perhaps. Okay. Sure. And what attracted you to sculpture as your artistic medium over other choices you might have made, like painting or printmaking? (laughs) I don't think you have that much choice. I was always a maker of things as a a kid. Mm -hmm. And um, and when I finally got the chance to go to art school, I gravitated to the sculpture studio before too long. Is there something about working in space that is appealing as opposed to the the 2d plane well putting things in the real world is what um became apparent that you enjoy Mm -hmm. working in in you're a maker of things and they're and they're in in real real place and um and and you you grow accustomed to that as 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 a way of things realise, mm-hmm. and um, and then the implications of those things grow on you philosophically as well as phys- physically, mm-hmm. and, um, and one thing leads to the next. So your work uh, tends to fit quite comfortably within the descriptor of being um, abstract work, uh, meaning that it exists with a degree of independence from uh, visual references in the real world. Um, But how do you conceive of the forms you are going to create? Is there something in the real world that you are referencing? Or do the shapes and lines come purely from your imagination? Or is it through working purely with your chosen materials that form the images that you create? It is representational of something, but it's it's not descriptive. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a big proposition you've asked me to un- <laughs> un- unpack there. Um, 
na- it's 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 a relationship with nature where you cogitate on the internal internal dynamics mm-hmm. of it as you work. The sculpture's an outcome of work. Sculpture's quite slow, has to be methodical, has to be pragmatic. You, you understand that very early. It's not capable of great gestural flamboyance. Mm. Um, you appreciate its manifestation because you've seen the manifestation from the Venus of Willendorf through to Renaissance Italy, through China and India and, and, and uh, Buddhist Japan, through to the sculpture of Oceania. You, you become aware that sculpture's manifestations been going around since the beginning of, of, uh, of uh, time as we kind of measure it, perhaps. So, you know, you, 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 you're in a relationship with materials and, and some, some thought, thought processes. And so things come together slowly over time and uh, that's influenced by that relationship you have with material. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the chain of events that being having a relationship with creation is. So that's broadly the justification, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and sculpture in Australia has perhaps enjoyed a flowering over the last 40 years or so um, that wasn't there before. Sculpture's never been as mythologized within the Australian narrative um, as painting has. Mm-hmm. There's been sculptors there, of course. Bertrand McKennell, Lyndon Dadswell, uh, Rainer Hoff came through the tech. You know, they ran the sculpture department there. But it was uh, post-war England and New York, London and New York, that then went on to have the great influence and... Uh, Australia responded to that with through a, a combination of reasons. Mm-hmm. One of them being really all the young artists left Australia and then they ended that up coming back. That is a trend. Back. Yep. Back then it was particularly uh, the what the the path. Mm-hmm. Not so much now. So you know, seeds seeds were set there, and so I'm talking still generally about the justification of sculpture, but you. I think as, as underneath it all is a creative, you know, if you choose that the creative path, you have some relationship with things. So the relationship I have with nature is I, I've only got one and that's kind of with the sea. Uh-huh. And it's an um, unusual relationship for sculpture to have a relationship with landscape, if you like, in, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, broadly. And that's one thing. Another thing that would say manifest in the post, the post-war years, um, as sculpture's international footprint became um, evident, mm. uh, along with along with painting. And so, um, the the work that I do, um, my first tool that I go to is the is the cutting torch. Um, when I work with steel, 
And I enjoy that uh, gentle hiss huh? as the uh, as the as the metals cut into shape, and that's my first gesture. I I um, make elements up mm-hmm. out of the steel, shape them, hand hand cut them. They're quite organic, and then there's a process of bringing them together, mm-hmm. and. Um, and uh, you know, the sculpture gets an entirety at some point, and then it's a completely plastic thing which can be worked and reworked until you know you're in conversation with it mm-hmm. in, in a bleak sort of way. But it's something's something's getting closer. Something's um, a chain of events is there's some some feeding going on, but. Don't want to get too um, overwhelmed by the fact that things are made in steel. Steel's a very simple craft, very, very uh, coherent material mm-hmm. to be spontaneous with, to be fluid with. Yes. And um, you know, it's um, it's the same craft that uh, I engaged in 40 years ago. That I I still find um, I'm mining that that seam of potential. Yeah, it does seem like a very um, uh, long and happy relationship to steel as a material, but it is quite an interesting one. You're talking about the fact that, you know, if you're looking at um, your connection to nature, it it is the sea. Uh, Steel, whilst you say it has all of this potential for being fluid, is also kind of a a heavy, hard material, but something that I think really characterises your work is that sense of of movement and and lightness that perhaps comes back to that that reference. But it feels quite magical in a way that you can turn something heavy and static um, into something that is so dynamic and with so much movement. Well, that's the poetry of movement. Mm. Poetry is, contains repetitions, and it's sort of a, a form-making built of rep- repetitious elements that are nuanced by the fact that they're hand-cut, and so they're kind of same but different. And as I was sort of talking about before, you, you know, you ruminate on the internal dynamics mm. of you know what you kind of day it's like it's a daydream really mm. but it's it's having um equivalence in those rhythms to to things in nature and it's kind of like that the sea it's endless it's uh, perpetual motion it's repetition same but different every time and so through uh, that um you know uh, that sort of simple Starting point is is what I've come to uh, yeah still find um, some space. Yeah, sure. So, what does um, your creative process look like, or what does a um, a day in the studio look like for you if you were going to start a new sculpture? Because I understand you don't necessarily start with an outcome in mind, as you say, you you start with an initial gesture, and then you you let that um, you know you let the work unfold, I suppose, in, in a way. Uh, but are you working on a single work at a time? Are you working on multiple things? Do you sit there until it's done or do you have quite a fluid in and out way of coming in and out of the studio? Well, one work leads to the next. So it is chain of events. One sculpture will give you a little clue as to 
maybe what the next one is. And with the logistics of it, you have to have some steel, and so that comes as a found object mm. to a certain extent, even though you've bought it. Um, but that's got proportion, length, thickness, diameter. You know, it has an object presence to start with. And so the collation of those, an aggregation of those, is obviously going to uh, play a big part. Mm-hmm. So you move through the scale of things from slightly larger, some small. Sometimes you work on the bench. Sometimes you start out as a freestanding thing. If I'm a bit um, um, sort of uh, dry, or what's the word? You know, if I'm not firing straight away, I often turn to cutting. Mm-hmm. I have to make lots of bridging elements as well. So there's a process there. So if I've got something underway, I'm straight back to it um, with a you know, ten, five to ten minute look <laughs> before um, it starts speaking back to me yep. and uh, you get on with it. Or if it's between works, you, you can often be processing something and then there's a very laborious side that once something's um, let you know that, that it's okay, then there's the making good, which is welding, grinding, tarting up and fini- the finishing yeah. stage of it. So that takes some time, but you have to wait until you've given the author- authorization to proceed. <laughs> and the work is the thing that gives you that authorization. It comes from oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, we're going to take a little break and uh, listen to some music. So I always try to uh, pick a song that somehow reflects the the person that I'm talking to thematically. Um, one of my greatest moments was when I was talking to Dr. Marissa's Be- Dr. Marissa Bet. She's a paleontologist, and I played The Rock by Simon, or I Am a Rock by Simon and Garfunkel. But I was thinking about this interview. All I could think about was. Um, uh, flash dance, oh, what a feeling <laughs> by Irene Cara because there's welding involved. Uh, so let's listen to that.
Welcome back to What the Art. I am still talking to James Rogers. Now, James, you've had quite a busy 12-month sort of period um, uh, with two solo exhibitions and a pretty fantastic group show that was held at NIRAM last year. Um, how has it been riding, you know, a pretty significant wave of momentum and activity? I can imagine that it's both exhilarating and exhausting. Yes. Um, look, it's enjoyable. Mm. Um, you... You... You you spend a long time, you know, working away quietly, and um, so to uh, socialise your work is is, is quite quite. Um, well, it's an it's not just an opportunity; it's um, it's an honour in in some cases. And one of the shows that you've recently done um, was Tunnel Vision, which was ex uh, exhibited at Drill Hall Gallery from July to September last year. It was a survey exhibition that showed 27 works spanning 13 years. What was the process involved in putting an exhibition like that together? Uh, the director of the Drill Hall, Terence Maloon, um, offered me a show some years before. I'd been in a group show at the Drill Hall some time before uh, 2011, I think it was, and he was following up on that. You are a director of a gallery yourself, you know, it, uh, you, know you work well in advance, so Terence visited the studio and mm -hmm. we went through the possibilities and thought there was something to work with, and so that was a long lead-up time for that. And um, but it, uh, with a small delay there, well, three month delay with the first COVID shutdown, we yes. came good in um, the end of July. I think came good is a uh, good description. Uh, John McDonald, the art critic for the Sydney Morning Herald, was very positive about the exhibition. He described it as a revelation um, and discuss discusses the pleasure one feels in viewing your work. Is it important to receive feedback like that from, you know, th from art critics or it's not necessarily something that, you know, you bother about too much, but it must have been nice to have such a positive reaction? Well, the newspapers have basically abandoned the solo practitioner, mm. really, for since the very early 80s. Um, generally, it's a group show that's being shown once a week. used to be great coverage in the Herald. There'd be sort of something like three articles a week, little Watsons. Everyone would mm -hmm. get a little couple of lines um, in the... Um, that Pink Guide that used to be in the Herald in the 80s. There were two reviewers for the Herald. Look, you'll you'll take what comes along at some point, and um, it was good for the drill hall as well to get some um, some text mm. to go along with it. You know, they work very hard um, within their university context to give their gallery some profile down there in Canberra most magnificent space mm. and a great honour to put sculpture in there and for someone to come in fairly um, unprepared to see the show and um, and then devote some uh, inches in the Herald. Uh, 
yeah, it's it's, it's it uh, means a lot. It's very surprising how much comes with a few inches in the herald. Absolutely, <laughs> it can't hurt. It's, well, yeah, it's just great. people seem to place some store in it as well. Well, like you say, I think it's harder and harder to get noticed and to get some attention. So when you do get some, well, it's a it's a reading of your work yeah. rather than you know me so much. It's interesting to see how people read the mm. work. That's where the connection will or won't be when he says a revelation. Well, you know, it's <laughs> funny sort of term that uh, whether you reveal too much or you over-explain something, perhaps. Sure. Um, however, he went on to have some insights there. Mm. Um, yeah. That. that um, uh, were related to me with some through some other people who saw the show. So you've got uh, sculptors coming along to see it, which is number one audience in a way, mm-hmm. and um, they're not short of an opinion. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and and always have been. And as I yeah. say, these are the Sydney sculptors who turn up time after time, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, you know have. Back back in the day, were in the sculpture department or not? So you know, the little that's 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 part of it as well. Yeah, sure. And was it interesting for you seeing seventeen years of work presented in, in that way? I suppose it gives you an opportunity to um, explore your own creative progression over time, or um, uh, reflect on that in a way that's perhaps different than when you just have your work in the studio or out in the world in um, uh, disparate places. Did that reveal anything unexpected to you or perhaps um, uh, create a sense of where you might go to next because you got that opportunity to look at it in that way? Well, as a sculptor, as an artist, you're only as good as your next work anyhow. (laughs) You know, you've lived with it for ages, you know. Um, You've sorted some of the duds out of your shows and so you've you've had a little uh, an opportunity to have a choice um you've had it around it's been cluttering up the space <laughs> you've tripped over it too much but the delight of giving it room mm. and putting sculpture indoors in a sympathetic gallery is just um a g- the great a great experience yeah. and to give it some room not overhang it just it was enough. a very nice refined selection 27 works yeah over over that period of time you could have you know crammed them in but you know well, making I'd, choices is really important for that kind of exhibition and the pragmatics of um i took all the work from home mm-hmm. um, from works that had come back so i didn't I didn't feel I had the resources to hunt down works and perhaps do work or pick them up here, there. So the pragmatics of it was take one truck from from Walker to Canberra and a couple of others on mm. that I took as well. Forced and, editing. Good. Oh, well, um, Terence was in agreement that we could m- make a mix too. So we, we were able to put some plywood works in there, yeah. which were... a um, a passage of work I did um, just finished up on the turn of the decade, yep, mm-hmm. the last last pieces I made. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, forced editing, yeah. Um, look, and it's there's a limit to any space. 
um, and it's not a, it wasn't about chaff. It was about making uh, making a, some a way of engaging with it. Mm. And Terence was keen that the propositions were clear that he wanted to see the connection in the propositions from the plywood. There was the same in in a way working way through into the different manifestations of steel from before through and after, yeah. Mm. Um, And most recently you've had a solo show at Nanda Hobbs Gallery. Um, So tell us about the work in Hard One Grounds. Is there something specific that you were looking at in this exhibition or it's more a continuation of the practice that we've been talking about? Definitely a continuation um, into a new gallery that uh, took took the time while the... uh, Tunnel Vision show was on in Canberra to pretty well um, get stuck back into things after Canberra was prepared. Mm-hmm. So there was, I'd actually started it before when the uh, COVID cancellation postponement um, came along. So I was in the studio. It's mm-hmm. what you do. <laughs> it's what Walker affords you. Yeah. <laughs> the time and space to do. Yeah, fantastic. And were you happy with the exhibition and what makes you happy with an exhibition? Well, there's um, a couple of things in that proposition. You know, <laughs> there's works that you, you select. Once again, you uh, choose to, to take down. You've got a feeling for the, the room they're going into. <clears throat> there's... Um, enthusiasm comes from the the gallery staff they have to deal with it and see it and, and Nanda Hobbs has a, a way of representing their artists that's quite particular in that um, everyone comes out when the work's in the gallery and and and, and kind of takes notes it's amazing you know as you um, and so they feel they've had some insights and then they might have a bit of chat and then there's the enthusiasm of the director and then there's the chat on the night. So once again, you've got sculptors turning up, you've got friends and family who come in for support. And so on all those levels, you're, you're, uh, you're, you know, you're, there's, a, there's a big soup there <laughs> um, and, you know, you're quite distracted with lots of mm. people you're catching up with for the first time. So I enjoyed the show and um, the pieces I took along I was, I'd was i had some uh, connection with to feel I could show them, the next body of work working in the same terms. And um, then there's the punters' uh, turn to endorse it. Mm-hmm. And I had had some encouragement there. Fantastic. That is all the time we have for today on What the Art. Thank you so much, James, for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to chat. Um, So we have come to the end of another episode, but don't fret. We will be back next week. Uh, Until then, we have some smashing programs coming up at Neerham. This Saturday, we have This World, performed by Australia's jazz supergroup, Mike Nock, Julian Wilson, Jonathan Swartz and Hamish Stewart. There are still some tickets available, uh, but if you want to come, I suggest you book in quick. And the event that that everyone is talking about is the great Neerham Bake Off, which is on this Sunday. As well as Mike Nock. 
As well as my cock, yes. Uh, there are 89 tasty entries vying for glory and prizes. You can come along to view the judging and partake in afternoon tea where we'll be tasting all of the cakes, all 89 cakes. Tickets are available uh, via the Niram website. You can connect with Niram via our website, www.niram.com.au. We're on Facebook and Instagram, or you could come say hello to us at the museum. We are open 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tuesday to Sunday. I'm Rachel Parsons, and we are going to end uh, today's session by getting ready for the Bake Off by listening to Banana Pancakes by Jack Johnson. Can't you see that it's just raining? There ain't no need to go outside. But baby, you hardly even notice when I try to show you. Song is meant to keep you doing what you're supposed to. Waking up too early, maybe we could sleep. Make you banana pancakes, pretend like it's the weekend now. Pretend it all the time Can't you see that it's just raining There ain't no need to go outside But just maybe like a ukulele Mama made a baby Really don't mind the practice Cause you're my little lady Lady, lady love me Cause I love to lay you lazy We could close the curtains Pretend like there's no word Pretend it all the time, Lord. Yeah, can't you see that it's just raining? There ain't no need to go outside. Ain't no need, ain't no need. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Can't you see, can't you see? Rain all day and I don't. Can't you see? Can't you see? 